You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Hey, good morning. It is good to be here. There's only a, one other church I would rather preach at, and that's Restore. Outside of Restore, this is the place I'd want to be. So thank you so much for the kind invitation. I remember, was it two Good Fridays ago, or was it last Good Friday? I lose. Last Good Friday. That was, it was wonderful to be with you guys here for that service. Uh, now, who was here for that? Probably most of y'all. Yeah, that was, that was a great night. Man, thank you for the, uh, just the warm reception and the music uh, that drew us right to Christ. Um, I think Zoyana said it right, like, Jesus is sufficient for all of our issues, right? Even the issues of this week. And we, need, we, we suffer chronic gospel amnesia, um, and we need to come again and again together be reminded of the goodness of God revealed in the gospel of Christ. Um, I, don't, I feel a little uncomfortable standing right behind such a fancy pulpit, but uh, we'll have to work through that. Um, I want to just read uh, uh, one verse in the, uh, in the scripture that I'm going to be preaching from. Uh, I want to pray and then want to get after it. Would you mind standing to your feet out of respect for God's word as I read 1 Corinthians 11? Just one verse to lead us into it. Paul says, but in the following instructions, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. And Paul, as we'll see, is talking about how they celebrated communion or really uncelebrated communion. We're going to dive into that this morning. Father, thank you so much for your steadfast love and unyielding compassion. We thank you that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the much more. We thank you that you separate us from our sins as far as the east is to west. That you do not hold them against us, Lord. We thank you that again and again and again you're calling us out of um, the mire of our own stuff and again and again back into your arms. Lord, would you, would you, would you speak to us today? Would you speak to this church today, Lord? Um, Christianity is actually radically communal. And you want to show off your glory in the local church. And yet, as we saw in the church at Corinth, so many things get in the way of that, Lord. They're even taking the most sacred celebration of unity and using it to display division. Lord, that sacred text from 2,000 years ago was fresh as today's newsprint, more fresh. And you have a word for us from it. So God, would, you, would your spirit position our hearts right now, individually and collectively, to hear from you, Lord? Not to check the box, not to think, been there, done that, heard that, but Lord, that we would totally position ourselves before you, eager to receive the word of God. Lord, would you, would you help me 
um, to preach this message far beyond my natural capability or capacity. Lord, would you, would you hit delete on anything you don't want me to say and, and, and put the pedal to the metal, anything you want me to amplify that I didn't even plan on saying? Lord, would you open ears right now? Would you unstop, Lord, hard hearts, soften hearts, Lord? Um, would you move in our midst? Would you speak to us? Lord, this is not a lecture. This is communion with the God of gods and the Lord of lords and the King of kings. So we worship you now together through your word, and we believe that um, you, you do want to speak to us. You do want to change us. You do want to transform us. You do want to forgive us. You do want to turn our eyes towards you. So we, we come with expectation that you're able to do far more than we could even know to ask or think for your glory through the church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may grab a seat. I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration to say that many Christians, most Christians, have a radically individualized idea of their faith. Radically individualized idea of their faith. For example, the mentality often is, you know, I, I may not be faithful in getting to the church uh, for, for worship. I mean, if it's a sunny day, I got to Take advantage of the good weather, and if it's snowy, well, I better stay in the house, and if it's rainy, well, just blah. But I do have my quiet time in the Bible. I do get alone with God, me and God. And maybe the mentality often is, maybe I don't prioritize corporate prayer, but hey, I throw up a prayer every once in a while to my Father in heaven, especially when I need a parking spot. People cycle in and out of church sometimes like, I don't know, the college dating scene. Sticking to that date until something or someone better comes along or there's a conflict or there's something you don't like, it's on to the next date. Now, I, I want to be clear, Christianity is personal at one level. Like, I can't come to Christ for you, right? And you can't come to Christ for me. So we get a personal relationship with the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. That's all true, but that personal relationship lands us all smack dab right in the middle of a brand new family. And that's why, as I just prayed, Christianity is actually radically communal because we're now in this new organism called the church. And one of the chief metaphors for the church in all of scriptures is the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, many times Paul talks about how we are all then parts or members of the body of Christ. And one of the greatest visual, and I would say visceral displays of our blood-bought unity, our blood-bought oneness in Christ, is the gift of the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Who made this bread? I'm tempted to take a bite of it right now. Oh, yes. Can we take that home? <laughs> and what is that? Dom Perignon in the, wine, in the glass, or what is that? Thank you for doing that. Um, it's a symbol, and that's what those are. So, the greatest 
display of our visual, a visual display of our blood-bought unity in Christ is the Lord's Supper. Another way we call the Lord's Supper is what? Communion. You ever think about the term communion? You break it down. Common what? Union. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we celebrate communion, we are celebrating the common union we have with one another rooted in the common union we have with Jesus Christ. And that's why historically, the church has celebrated communion with a shared or common loaf of bread and a shared or common cup of wine. Now, I know that might offend our, you know, 2000, now 22, uh, sanitary sensibilities, the idea of all eating of the same loaf and drinking out of the same cup, but is it not a depictively, illustratively beautiful display of our common union with each other, rooted in our common union with Christ as we drink of a common cup and eat of a common loaf? Now, all of that I aim just to use to set up today's text 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34. And what was happening was this. The church at Corinth, you know the church at Corinth was riddled through with all kinds of issues, right? One of the things that they were doing is they were taking common union, they were taking communion, they were taking the Lord's Supper, something again that was intended to be a visual display of our blood-bought unity in Christ, they were taking what was intended to be a display of unity and actually displaying division in that very thing. They were not reflecting unity. They were displaying division as they took at the Lord's table. I'm going to fill that out in a few minutes. But Stephen Um, he said this. They, they made it a sacrament of their accomplishments, not a sacrament of Christ's accomplishments. They were taking the very thing, communion, that was supposed to celebrate the eradication of differences between them, and it was actually exacerbating their differences. So that's the context in which Paul is basically going to say this big idea, take communion the right way. That's his word for us today. Take communion, for, take communion the right way. Now, I want you to look at how Paul puts it in verse 17, that one verse I just read. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now, that's quite a statement. The Lord's Supper is designed to be life-giving to the local church, right? It is supposed to be good for the church. And he is saying that actually when you take communion, it is not for the better, for the good, or for the worse. I mean, that's a strong statement. It's almost like he's saying it would be better if you didn't even do it because you're doing it in such twisted fashion. He dials in on the issue in verse 18 when he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, he says. Now that is, by the way, classic Pauline understatement when he says, I believe it in part. Oh, he knows it full and full. The whole book of Corinthians is about him addressing various levels of conflict and division, starting back in chapter 1. You remember that? It was division based on favorites. People in the church says, I'm, with, I'm team Peter, I'm team Apollos, I'm team Paul. And then the most insufferable lot where people said, I'm team Jesus. 
Well, here, the division is just a little bit different. Here, the division is predicated or based on or rooted in worldly standing and personal selfishness. Verse 19, he does acknowledge that, um, that divisions do have... Um, Divisions are not outside the sovereignty of God, right? Like God is in control of everything. He's never the author of sin, but he uses everything for kingdom purposes. So he's going to remind us, okay, when division comes, there are some purposes in it. It, it, it filters out the fakes. It roots out the frauds. It exposes the wolves. So he says division does have a purpose. Look at what he says in verse 19. For there must be, he says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So he does acknowledge, hey, God is still large and in charge when division hits a church. However, nevertheless, we are responsible to pursue and to reflect unity. Which is exactly why he wrote this book, to correct what was going on in Corinth. It's why he writes this chapter. What they were doing was so bad then, in verse 20 he says this, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. What's he saying there? When you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. What is he getting at? What he's getting at is this. Again, they were taking communion in such a wicked misguided, twisted way, it was like you were, you're not even taking communion. I, the closest illustration I can think of is, if maybe you went to a ball game, somebody says, well, how was the ball game? And it was such a lopsided game, you said it wasn't even a game, it was that bad of a game. And he's saying, the way you guys are taking Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper, it's like you're not even taking it. Verse 21, he tells us why. For in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. Now here's where a little context will help. It was not uncommon in, in the ancient world, in the early church, that when they took communion, it was part of a larger meal. It was almost like a, a potluck. People would bring various food. There would be a worship service. They'd have a big meal together. And then, after all, you already had bread there. You already had wine there. You would finish it with a communion service. Very common, very, very common practice. In fact, the first Lord's Supper inaugurated by Jesus Christ, he took a full Passover meal, did he not, and used that then to start what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. Now, there's even more. In first century Corinth, Greco-Roman world of that era, they, were, they operated by a different calendar. They didn't have Sunday as the first day of the week as we would know it, which is typically an off day, right? Most people don't have to work Sunday. Some people do for various reasons, but normatively people don't. That wasn't the case. It was just another work day. People had to, to fulfill their, their work responsibilities, for that reason, when the church met on Sundays, you can read about this in various writings, they would either meet very early in the morning before people would go to work so the whole body could come together, or more likely and more often later in the evening. And what would happen is the, the, the wealthy people in the congregation who were far less constrained, weren't clocking in and clocking out, they could show up anytime they wanted. they show up early. They would maybe, I don't know, um, 
stop at Whole Foods on the way and pick up $35 a pound ribeyes and a $64 bottle of wine. Then your middle class, your, your tradespeople, they, they would clock out. They were able to get there. Maybe they would stop at Costco and get a couple uh, roast chickens and some loaves of bread. And then your lower class and slaves that were in the congregation, they would just get away when they could. And maybe they would stop um, at the corner market gas station or family dollar and bring a, a box of Little Debbie's. Now, obviously, I'm speaking facetiously, but, but commentators will say the lower class, the slaves that were part of the congregation, they would probably pick up a piece of rough bread uh, from the master's table. And what was happening is people weren't waiting for others to eat. They were just going ahead and diving in and chowing down. Look at that expression. Let me read it one more time. Each one goes ahead with what? His own meal. They were making that highly individualistic all about themselves. By the time they were supposed to have actual communion, this is what happened. Some people were stuffed. Other people were hungry. And some of the people were even drunk by the time communion started. Now, what was going on? Here's what was going on. The tribalizing of the world, in this case, classism, economic classism, upper class, middle class, lower class, the tribalizing divisiveness of the world was being displayed in the very place that was supposed to mark its demolition, its destruction. Now, this doesn't mean there is a destruction of various class levels. You find that in Scripture. The Bible's not after uniformity, it's after unity. In other words, we no longer relate to each other based on these other identities. Our primary ways we relate to each other is in Christ, as equal citizens in the kingdom of God. Classism and carnality, not the cross of Christ, was on blast, on full display in this communion service. Now listen to this quote by Paul Barrett. Try this quote on. Use it. Ask of yourself, how do I line up? He wrote, what do I think of others in the congregation, especially those who may be less educated or poor? Or I could flip it and say, or people conversely who are more educated and wealthy. Do I re in any way regard them as in any way inferior? Do I prefer the company of the clever, the accomplished, the articulate, the wealthy, do I avoid those on the other side of the spectrum from me? That's good questions to ask ourselves, right? In verse 22, Paul does not hide his absolute disdain for what they were doing. He says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. They were both despising God and humiliating others. Which, by the way, reminds us that how we treat people on the horizontal level says something about our connection to God on the vertical level. They're inseparably connected. Now, Paul, with a lot of things, can actually be quite charitable. You remember the meat sacrifice titles thing? What does he say? 
Listen, if you can do it, idols are nothing, eat it. But if it's against your conscience, what? Don't eat. Ain't no two sides to this issue. He says, you are flat out wrong for what you're doing. You are in one act, despising God as you humiliate others. Strong, strong stuff. So dropping down to the last paragraph, verse 33, he says this. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give direction when I come. Huh. Paul is saying this is so serious that you just, listen, hold your horses, wait for everyone to get there. And if you're so hungry, you got to eat, maybe just pig out at home ahead of time. Because if you don't do that, if you keep on with this mess, you're turning communion, communion, into a place and reason for judgment in the house of God. Now, the burden for a preacher is to, is to travel 2,000 years in the future and make a faithful application. Because the context is a little bit different, right? It's different than the context Paul was speaking into. For one, we typically don't have communion after a big meal, though we're talking about doing that next time at Restore one of our potlucks. That would be a great thing to do. And the context is also different, though, because most people, though, though both our churches would represent various economic levels, no doubt, most people don't have a hard time getting a full meal when they need one. So how do you make the faithful application? Well, I, I would say this. Um, certainly classism can still exist, can it not? And it can rear its ugly head, reveal itself, and who we're always gravitating towards and serving and reaching out to, and who we don't. And what we're thinking in our heads when we are connecting with somebody who's far different than us. We are capable of, of, of bringing the world's fleshly, tribalizing tendencies right up into the body of Christ. It is happening everywhere. The bitterness, the feelings, the resentment, say, about a certain ethnicity, sometimes are in the church of God. Or about how a, 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 a person might vote. Or about differing views on vaccination or mask. Or about where a person lives. And I could go on and on and on. Now, listen, on a few of those things, I've got some pretty strong views. And you do too. Ain't nothing wrong with that. What becomes wrong is when you resent people in the family of God who might see it a little bit differently. You're showing that what really you identify with is that position, not the God who raised you from the dead. So this is what Paul is addressing. That's why we need Paul's instruction on communion. So that instead of displaying the divisions of the world in the body of Christ, we're actually seeing them demolished as we put on blast the blood-bought unity of Jesus Christ. So I've dealt with the first and the fourth paragraphs. That's kind of halfway through the message maybe, I guess. Now I want to look at the second and third paragraph because Paul's going to give us four things. In, this is all really set up for this, by the way. I could, I'll just be honest. That was a long introduction, okay? All right. But I'll race through this. There's four things that we need to do if we're going to take communion right and display our blood-bought unity in Christ and not the, the stuff of the world. Four things, right out of the text. Number one, remember. 
remember. Let me read verses 23 through 25. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, that's good music behind the reading, so no problem there, all right? <laughs> For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in what? Remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, I, I always want to assume that, that people are coming from different backgrounds. I didn't become a Christian until I was 26, and so often we just assume stuff. Jesus is not literally saying that his body becomes bread, okay? I was in a church growing up that, that taught that. Jesus is not literally saying that his blood literally becomes wine or juice, okay? Any more, for instance, than when Jesus said, I am the door, he wants us to conceive of him as a big piece of oak swinging on some hinges, right? Or when he said, I'm, I'm the true vine, that we're to think of him as some green, windy thing growing up a lattice. No, he's speaking symbolically, right? And what is clear symbolically is that the bread represents his body that would be broken, and the wine represents his blood that would be shed. He is speaking symbolically. And he says, I want you to take this bread, and I want you to take this cup, and I want you to do it regularly in remembrance of me. Why does he do that? Because we are so stinking gospel forgetful. We so easily forget and drift off of the gospel. Not occasionally, we're serial gospel amnesiacs. How often did you, did you think of the gospel yesterday, right? Or this, this one lands on all of us. The last beef I had with somebody, how did the gospel speak to that? Or did I say, I don't want to apply any gospel right now. I got this issue. See, we forget the gospel, if not in our heads, certainly in our heart, where we don't want to bring it to bear. Listen to this quote by John Piper. The Lord's Supper is a stark reminder, time after time, that Christianity is not some new age spirituality. It is not getting in touch with your inner being. It is not mysticism. It's not dreaming. It's not channeling. It's not good vibes. It's not going into neutral. It is a conscious directing of your mind back into history to Jesus and what we know about him from scripture. It is rooted in historical facts. Jesus lived. He had a body and a heart that pumped blood and skin that bled. He died publicly on a Roman cross in the place of sinners so that anyone who believes in him might be rescued from the wrath of God. That happened once and for all in history. The Lord's Supper then roots us time after time in the nitty-gritty of human history. Bread and cup, body and blood, execution and death. <laughs> if I were to summarize my message week after week after week at Restore to the, to the parishioners, to the congregants at Restore, it would be this. Don't forget the gospel. Now, I'm going to preach it from different texts. I'm going to apply it to different issues, to be sure. But at the end of the day, you can distill it down to this. Don't forget the gospel. 
And if you were to ask yourself, what's the best way I can serve um, those that I have the closest relationships with? Family members, spouse, children, parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, whatever. What's the best way I can serve my family in the body of Christ? There's a lot of great things to do. There's a lot of ways that we ought to serve each other in very tangible ways to be sure. But the ultimate way you can serve somebody around you is by telling them again and again the old, old story. By reminding them of the gospel. We don't do that so easily, right? We don't really do that. It doesn't really come naturally. We forget in that sense. But that's the best way we can serve each other. I'm reading a book. I've read it uh, once or twice before in years past by Jerry Bridges called The Book Ends of the Christian Life. Anybody heard that book? It's a really great book. Reading through it again right now with my wife. And, and, and basically what he says is we need to remember and relish in the gospel regularly. And as we do that, that will produce three things inside of us that will galvanize continued growth. The first thing he says is an increasing awareness of our own sinfulness in light of God's holiness. You know, there are some people who say after you become a Christian, you should never think about sin, talk about sin. You're nothing but a saint. Well, you're a saint, but you also got a sin nature, right? And so, like, you can put your head in the sand and lie about it, or you can just be real. And he says, as we dwell in the gospel, we're reminded why he, was, why he bore our griefs, why he carried our sorrows, why he was hammered to a cross, right? It was for my sin. So an increase in awareness of my sinfulness in light of God's holiness, but coupled with this, an increasing assurance of God's forgiveness to me. Like increasing insurance that, wow, my sin, not in part but in whole, has been nailed to the cross. Like, whoa. And then third of all, out of that, renewed motivation of love and gratitude and surrender. When are most Christians typically most excited about their relationship with God? When are most, would you say? Yeah, like, you know, you know you're in that, uh, that honeymoon phase of your, of, of, of your walk with God. You just got saved, right? And God is so good, he doesn't show you all your sin because it would just bury you, right? So he, he lets you see some of your sin, and then as you walk with him, you're like, wow, I'm much more sinful than I ever thought I was before I got saved, right? That's how he is. But there is a euphoria, right? Because you have this fresh awareness of though how sinful you are, and you have no idea how you are, how much you are, but at least you're thinking about that. Coupled with this awareness, man, he really just, just take away my sin. And you're like, Lord, and you just, you're just zealous. You might be uh, like a pit bull in a china shop. You may have no tact at all, but praise God, you have zeal. Born of love and gratitude and surrender. And why does that wane in most of us? Because we're not remembering and relishing the gospel. <laughs> that, there's a direct correlation right there. Now, I told you I was going to run through the latter part of this message, but i got to hit this one phrase, the blood of the new covenant. Do you see that in verse, what verse is it in? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. What's that up in there for, as we're to remember? That's referring, the new covenant is referring to what Jeremiah prophesied in the Old Testament, Ezekiel, that the day would come where God would take out our stinking hearts of stone, right, and give us a heart of flesh. Unfortunately, and let's just be honest with each other, the struggles of life, the suffering of life, coupled with, again, our chronic gospel amnesia, all conspire to petrify our hearts. You ever have a hard heart? 
Do you ever just not give a rip? Honestly? You get hard. You get hard towards evangelism. You might get hard towards somebody you love. You might get hard in any number of directions. And, and that's why he's reminding us, no, 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 no. God has given you a new heart. So stop that hard-hearted stuff. <laughs> I've given you a new heart, a heart of flesh that saw your sin and sees the Savior. The power you can have as a church summit and the power that we can have as individual Christians is not in, re, in discovering something new. There's all these Christian fads. Christians, we can be really dumb about chasing this fad and this fad and this fad and this fad. We're so faddish sometimes, which is just really foolish. Not that we shouldn't be creative or anything like that. But the key to have that power is re, 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 and again, remembering what we so easily forget. The gospel. And so he says, if you want to take communion the right way, you got to remember the gospel. And I'm so grateful that the whole service so far has caused us to remember the gospel in word, in song, in prayer. Why? Because we're always forgetting it. Number two, dropping down to verse 27, the word is examine. It's, that's a few verses later. That's verse 28. But let me read verse 27. Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Did you catch the word unworthy? I want you to note what is called unworthy. Not us, okay, but our approach. Does that make sense? Our manner. In other words, it's not an adjective describing who we are. It's an adverb describing how we come. Of course, we are unworthy. That's why he died for us. It's the whole point of the gospel. But now, as redeemed sinners, we're to come to him in a worthy manner. Well, somebody says, well, how would I know if I'm coming in a worthy manner? Next verse, verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now this seems to be pretty serious stuff, doesn't it? Because he said up in verse 27 that we'll be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord if we don't come in a worthy manner. He says in verse 29, we will be eating and drinking judgment on himself. So that's just pretty important stuff. What does it mean then to examine? What does it mean to discern the body? Well, there's several ideas, but I, I think there's really two. I think it boils down to two big ideas. If you want to know what does it mean for me to participate in communion in a worthy manner? What does it mean to examine myself? What does it mean to discern the body? Number one, it's this. Am I really thinking about the sacrifice of Christ and what it says to how I live and how I should be living? In other words, it, it, it pierces compartmentalized Christianity, right? Like I got the God part of my life and then I got the other stuff in my life, right? No. Am I really thinking about the sacrifice of Christ and what it means for how I live and how I should live? In other words, does my theology actually impact the way I live. To put it negatively, how can I say that I'm remembering that Jesus died for my sin 
while I'm still cherishing or nurturing that sin? How can I say, Jesus, I remembered you died for my unforgiveness when I'm still nurturing unforgiveness? That's convicting. How can I say, Jesus, I remember you died for my bitterness when I'm still holding on to that bitterness? How can I say, Jesus, I remember you died for my pride when I still don't give a rip about being proud? How can I say, Jesus, I remember you died for my fill-in-the-blank while you're still turning your back to him on that and hiding it and nurturing it? Does that make sense? Again, it's, it's pretty serious stuff. It, it, it's blasphemous. I think D.A. Carson said this. It's blasphemous to say, God, I accept your forgiveness, but I'm going to continue in my sin. And that doesn't mean you have instant victory through over bitterness or unforgiveness. Sometimes it's a real struggle to let go of stuff, right? But the issue is, is there that struggle? Are you agreeing with God that that stuff's got to go? Rooted in the cross of Christ. Number two, some say when he says discerning the body in verse 29, it's actually referring to the body of Christ. And it very well may because in the next few chapters when he says the body of Christ, he's actually referring to the body that we are parts and members of. And with that understanding, the question is simply this. Am I really loving and serving the body of Christ? Am I really loving and serving the body of Christ? Am I really prioritizing the people I have a common union with based on our common union with Christ far more than people that were in a worldly way I, look, I may look like I have more in common with, but I actually don't because this is my eternal blood-bought fam, not them. How do I prioritize the body of Christ? How do I prioritize worshiping? How do I pr prioritize serving? How do I prioritize giving? That is what it means in one way to discern the body of Christ, to examine ourselves. Now look at what God says through Paul in verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and what? And sick or ill and some have died. You're like, good night, Lord. Can't you lighten up a little bit? I think any husband here that's worth his salt very much is concerned with the honor of his wife, right? Right, man? Married man? Future married man? Yes, you ought to be. Well, how much more than the Lord Jesus Christ is concerned with the honor of his bride? He's jealous for, his glory, for her glory because he loves her. Now, this does not mean, we want to be, make sure we don't do a line-to-line, -line, a point-to-point -point correlation. It doesn't mean that every time somebody's weak or sick or dies, oh, it's because they were disobedient and took communion a lot of times without repentance. Not, no, no, no. We have to be careful about drawing that line, lest we become like the Pharisees. John chapter 9, remember that guy's born blind? Pharisees think they got Jesus. Say, well, why was he born blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? They thought it was for personal sin. And Jesus said, none of those reasons, but that I might show the glory of God. Nonetheless, it is a good question to ask, is it not? If there is weakness, if there is illness, if there is death. When, when James tells us when the elders are called to anoint somebody and pray over them, one of the things we need to do is confess our sin. And this is here for a reason. It is here as a warning. Verses 31 and 32, he says this. 
But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So when this discipline does happen, when it's necessary to get our attention, that is the painful but merciful love of God. It ain't condemnation, because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's tough, it's painful, but it's not condemnation. I think what is scarier to think of, of somebody taking the Lord's table over and over and over and over and over while still cherishing known sin, while still harboring sin, and never getting spanked by God. Never being chastened. That may indicate such a person, in fact, is not a child of God and under the wrath of God. So what he's talking about here, it's severe, but as the Puritan said, the severe mercy and love and patience of God. I mentioned Carson. He, uh, he, he told a story from this text about something that he had read many years ago. In the 1930s, there was a young single guy called into ministry. He took a pastorate in some rural area. The church he took was a church of about 200 people, was absolutely shot through with carnality, materialism, sexual immorality, greed, divisiveness, anger, all, it was, he said, just a royal mess. And for 18 months, he preached his heart out to this congregation, wanting to see all this taken care of. You know what got taken care of? Not a stinking thing. So after a year and a half of that, this single guy, he's alone in this new town, he was absolutely miserable. For about three months straight, he would throw himself on the floor of his study, weeping and calling out to the Lord, Lord, I can't do this anymore. You ever been there? I can't take this anymore. You got to get me out of here. I'm not the person for this. Send in an Apostle Paul type pastor who can clean things up. I can't do this. And then he also prayed, and if you don't do this, will you clean it up yourself? And did you know, in that church of barely 200 people, over the next three months, he did 34 funerals. And then the next 12 months, they baptized over 200. Now, Carson reminds us, we've got to be very careful about praying such prayers. Right? But the Lord Jesus Christ loves his bride and is jealous for her glory. And this very ordinance reminds us that examining and discerning shouldn't be a scary thing. Jesus already paid for those sins, right? It's just being honest with him, right? It's just being honest with our Father and coming to him with our stuff. He, listen, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And sometimes in love, he does have to hit us with a velvet-covered two-by-four. Sometimes there's not velvet on that two-by-four, right? But he's doing that to call us out of his goodness and kindness to repentance. So, so we examine ourselves. Third of all, we proclaim, verse 26, verse 26 right here. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we celebrate communion, we're all preachers. We're all, as the word says, proclaiming the gospel. It's, it's actually the generic word for heralding or preaching or proclaiming that Paul uses all through the epistles. So in just a moment, look around. We're all in a while going to be preachers in just a few minutes preaching the gospel to each other. But I think the way he puts it strikes a bigger note. And it reminds us of the thrust of this message. That communion is not some privatized thing. 
but it's a public proclamation. And we are to derive encouragement as we look around and we see brothers and sisters remind us in taking the elements that God met us in our mess and made us his sons and daughters. Which means if you're not a Christian, you've heard enough about what the bread represents and the cup represents to know that it's, it's talking about how Jesus died on the cross for our sins, shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And if you've never truly turned to Christ, it, it, honestly, it would be silly to do what we're going to do. In fact, I would be strong enough to say it would be blasphemous. And I also say to somebody who's been harboring sin, who would confess Christ, but harboring stuff, that it would not be wise to continue to do this until you get right with God. So as, 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 as we take it, just look around. Just look around and see everybody pointing you to Jesus. And who knows, maybe by the grace of the Spirit working your heart, you're like, man, I want in on this. That means you, 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 you remember the cross and you examine yourself and you confess. And he says we're to do this until the Lord comes. Why? Because we're so, so stinking forgetful, right? It's a gracious, visceral, visual reminder to our ever-forgetting hearts and heads we proclaim. And then finally, I just want to say this. We're going to celebrate. We remember, we examine, we proclaim, and we celebrate. You've heard me use the word celebrate, I think, probably all through this message. Celebrate, celebrate. And that's important to remember because sometimes we can become like very solemn. It, this is a serious thing, but not a solemn thing in that way. Yeah, we examine ourselves, but we, we also enjoy God. It's not a funeral. It is a party. It's a celebration. Now, I know the word is not in the text, celebration, but it's the whole framework of communion for crying out loud. The first communion service ever held at the Last Supper, it says in Matthew and Luke that they left singing a hymn, and it was likely Psalm 118. I'll read a portion of that when we distribute the elements in just a moment. And he says, again, we're going to do this until he comes. Why, again, is that there? It's a reminder that he was raised and he is returning. He is alive and he's coming back at any moment. You say, how do you know that? He came a first time. He was good on that promise. He's going to be good on the second promise to come back for his bride again. And when he comes, you know what he's bringing? He's bringing supper. That's the wedding supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19. Can you imagine the, the length of that table? Or It's a really big round table, whatever it is. All of God's kids from all of, all of time will be there. It is going to be some kind of reunion. If you've ever seen a reunion t-shirt, imagine what this reunion t-shirt is going to look like. But names upon names upon names of people ransomed from every tribe and nation and kindred and tongue. And you know what communion points us to? It points us to that time when we are going to everlastingly experience the, set, the fullness of our salvation. Because if we would be honest, you mean just examine your last 24 hours, your last 96 hours, there is, is there not, with all of us, a massive gap between our profession and our practice. Our theology is much better than the way we live it out. Is that not true? But the day is coming when God is going to collapse that gap. It's going to be swallowed up. Instead of suffering 
and struggle, oh no, oh no, there is going to be never-ending celebration, ever-increasing satisfaction. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of that. I need to be reminded of that sometimes. Do you? Because sometime in our Christian life, we leap. We're killing it. And sometimes we limp. We're getting killed. Right? But this says, even if you're in a season right now and you are limping, and who among us is not in some way, you can still take this knowing that you are going to leap. Because Philippians 1.6 says we can be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it through the day of Jesus Christ. Why? Signed and sealed by the crushing of his body, the shedding of his blood, and the fact on the third day he rose from the dead, did the highest men on sin, death, hell, and Satan, and whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.